you know how you're as an intern, you, you go back to the you know, we start seeing chest pains and uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages in the waiting room. <laughs> we, used to, we, we used to have fellowship in waiting room medicine, you know. All right. Okay, we will begin. So the, the purpose of this talk is, is basically to, to try to mimic what it is that we do. We do basically two things. We do risk assessment or risk stratification, and we do pattern recognition. And the better we get at looking at patterns that are unusual or um, unique and yet still being able to tie them together to what we normally see, the better off we're going to be. And radiology is that kind of thing. Radiology is classic pattern recognition. And so if you start to recognize what the pattern is, in unusual or different situations, back to the common goal, you're more likely to be able to pull this off. So that's what this is sort of um, geared to. So we're going to start off with uh, some, some uh, grouped x-rays. We start off by looking at um, the, uh, the grouping of x-rays by an anatomy, because that's sort of how we think. We think of chest, we think of abdomen, we think of head. So I, I try to group these x-rays. The other thing about these films is that these are our actual, 90% of these are actual x-rays that we saw here at UCI over the course of 20 years. So this is our patient population, as bizarre and unusual as that may appear, this is actually what we see. Now, of course, this was generated in the days before digital radiography, so all these were actually films, not digital images. Ergo, trying to capture them digitally is a challenge. So some of the films don't quite reproduce as well. But again, the point of this is not to teach you how to read films, but to improve pattern recognition so that when you see certain groups of images, it triggers certain thought processes, and you then can sort of sort through the, uh, the pattern that you're supposed to come up with. And so that's what we're really emphasizing. So whether or not you can actually see something on this is not as critical as to recognize the pattern for future reference, because when you're in you're the emergency department, you will have digital radiography, and you will be able to see these things. So seeing is not the hard part. It's what do I do with that image? That's what I'm trying to emphasize here. Okay, so we're going to start off. This was a patient from Fairview. Now, for those of you, we don't get Fairview patients very much anymore, so most of you don't know what's Fairview. But for those of us who've been here a while, we recognize Fairviewites very well. These are individuals from a, a, uh, a institution for brain-damaged kids. And these are usually severely brain-damaged kids. From, I mean, if, if we get someone from Fairview that can actually feed themselves, that's a pretty good deal. That's, that's a higher level of function. Many of them can't speak, can't move, can't feed themselves. They have G-tubes. They're very significantly neurologically compromised individuals. This particular gal was one of the higher-functioning individuals. She actually could walk. Uh, she could not talk, but she could feed herself. So she was uh, found sort of very sick looking one day, uh, and they, they took her blood pressure, and she was hypotensive. So they brought her here, and she wheeled her into the emergency department, We've, and she was in shock. And so we immediately started uh, evaluating her, of course. If we got a supine chest x-ray, or a near supine chest x-ray, this is actually a, a slight, this is like 45 degrees. It's not completely supine, it's not completely erect. Uh, and so what I'd like to do is, is start around, just go around and, and tell us what you see. Now again, 
because these are duplicated from actual films, the quality may not be as great. But there's a couple of pretty significant things on this x-ray that regardless of the image quality, you should be able to see. So again, I don't care if you get it right or not, but I want you to start thinking about what you're seeing and then thinking about patterns. So let's start off. You happen to be holding the short straw. So why don't you go ahead and start and tell me what you see. All right, this looks like a uh, abdominal plus chest radiograph. This is, like you said, a smaller person, so they probably captured a good amount of this image. Um, just to make it simple, let's just concentrate on the chest. Don't worry. There's a lot of bowel dilatation here, but that's really not the pathology. Let's just concentrate on the chest. Okay. So... Because um, this is about chest radiography. Remember the previous slide? Oh, okay. So the clue is everything we see for a while is going to be chest. So think chest. So... Uh, okay, so uh, chest film, and I'm looking down the trachea. It looks midline. There are good lung markings on the right. Um, ab um, good costure, uh, poor costure or blending on the costophrenic angle on the right. Um, a little bit more visualized on the left. Uh, very interesting. Uh, darker gas pattern on the left concerning I'm not sure that it looks like a steel rod or something right down the middle of the back uh, or right in the middle of the chest it just kind of looks very abnormal I don't know what that is um, what does it look like like a knife I don't know I have no idea like a I don't know I'm assuming some sort of spinal rod or stabilizing spine sometimes it looks like what way. it is what does it look like? It's a knife. You said it. Is that a knife? What do you think? I don't know. Like a does it look like a knife? Plastic. It looks like a plastic knife. Okay, what would a plastic knife look like? Mm -hmm. Very hard to see on an x-ray. Yeah, it wouldn't show up. Dina. So... <laughs> you believe me. <laughs> okay, what, what, what about a steel knife? What would that look like? Ooh. Right. That would look like that. <laughs> so, wait, if you, so what would you do if you saw this on the x-ray? What's your next response? I'd like to recall how well the patient was breathing. Breathing? She's breathing fine. Pulse, pulse ox is pretty good. But like 94, 95. Not great, but, but not, not profoundly okay. hypoxic. Um, as long as she was breathing okay, um, I'd look, I mean, I don't see... Okay, let's look. Uh, let's, let's let's put this aside for the minute. Look at the rest of the chest. Anything else? You picked up the little blunting over here. Anything else going on? I want to be sure that isn't a pneumothorax. Okay, this could be a pneumothorax. What would be the other interpretation? This would mean that this is the normal lung. This is the abnormal lung. What would be the other interpretation of this? Uh, that this is the normal lung and this is the abnormal lung. Like sub Q. Okay. What what do you what happens if you have a pleural effusion? and you put somebody at a 45 degree angle, what do you see? What happens to that effusion? It goes away. It sort of layers out, but not quite. So what happens is you see a little bit more haziness on one side that has the effusion than on the other, but it's not uniform all the way up. It's maybe a little darker down here, and because the fluid doesn't make it all the way to the top, because they're sort of at a 45 degree angle, it sort of fuzzes out, and by the time you get to the top, it looks about the same as the other side. So.
What this actually is showing you is multiple things, but one of them is, is what does a pleural effusion look like when they're not sitting straight up? Now, when they're completely lying down, the whole lung has a sort of slightly hazy appearance compared to the other side. But when they're sitting somewhat upright, it layers out a little bit. You don't see the layering like in a bolt upright view, but you'll see this. So this is actually a pleural effusion on the right with an, it, what it looks like in a semi-supine position. So image, pattern recognition. When you have two discrepancies between the sides, it's possible there's a pneumo on this side or there's fluid on this side and the person may not be completely sitting down or uh, upright or supine. So those are some of the things you want to think about. And there is, what, what would sort of tip you off that, and you picked it up, that this is actually the abnormal lung, it's the fact that the, the diaphragm is starting to get a little bit fuzzy on that side. Now, if this were normal lung and this had a pneumo, the diaphragm itself should still be sharp. And on a normal chest x-ray, the diaphragm is always sharp. There's no reason for the diaphragm to be blurry unless there's something <coughs> blurring it, which in this case would be either an infiltrate or fluid. And given the overall picture of this, given it sort of gets better as you go up, uh, and worse as you go down, it's probably a pleural effusion on the right. And that's, in fact, what this is. It's pleural effusion on the right. Okay. Um, and the other thing is, what is, now we'll go back to this. Okay, so what was this? We actually saw this and we had the same reaction. This can't be. Must have been in her clothes. So we took her clothes off, repeated the film. It was still there. We rolled her over. There was no knife. So now, if you know anything about Fairview patients, what do Fairview patients do a lot? They eat things, inanimate objects, salt shakers, coat hangers, knives. And what happened was this gal from Fairview swallowed a knife and developed a laceration of her esophagus. Now, that's really the reason behind this film, is we oftentimes worry about Borjavs. It's one of those six things. Every time we think about the deadly things in the chest, one of the six is Borjavs. But we never see it. And most people really don't know how Borhaus presents. And so the purpose of this slide, really, besides its entertainment value, is the fact that the most common finding in Borhaus syndrome is not pneumomediastinum, it's not pneumothorax, it's not sub-Q air, it isn't air at all. It's fluid. The most common finding in Borhaus syndrome is a pleural effusion. Now, in this particular person, because it's not a classic Borhaus, she got it on the wrong side. The classic is on the left. A left-sided pleural effusion is the most common finding in Borjov syndrome. So when you're worried about Borjovs, it's great if there's air everywhere. You know, sometimes that will help, but that's not very common. If you're going to like say, what is the one thing I want to remember about Borjovs? It's a left-sided pleural effusion. So the point of this chest X-ray is this is a person with a ruptured esophagus. She went to the OR, got it repaired, and she lived. She did not die. She actually survived quite well. But so when you think Borjovs, think pleural effusions, think left-sided pleural effusion, even though this one happened to be on the right because it was due to a knife, which is not Borjavs. Borjavs is from vomiting. So that's the purpose of this lecture. <laughs> so what do you think about the mediastinum and the cardiac silhouette? It's sort of a little wide. It is a little wide. She had, right, she had mediastinitis. So this, is, this, is, this was a sick gal. These people normally die. But they're, because, relatively speaking, she's young and healthy. She didn't have diabetes or renal failure or any other things. She actually survived through the surgery, through antibiotics, and actually walked out of the hospital. But that's what, she, yes, she does have mediastinitis. That's, that's what Borjavs really is. So, next slide. Okay, Matt, what do you see? Okay, so... And take a look for a second. I'll give you the lateral, too, because it's helpful. Okay. Here's the lateral. I'll take you back to the middle in the middle.
So what, what do you see? What do you think is going on? All right. So uh, Tricky looks okay. Um, bones, nothing really jumping out. Uh, cardiac silhouette looks generally okay. Getting kind of the lung fields. So the thing that's jumping out is there sort of like a deep sulcus on the left. Uh, you don't really see the sulcus on the right, so I guess it's hard to totally compare. But it does look... Here, I will tell you that this line goes straight across, straight across. to the chest wall. If this were, it would go straight out to here but and be white a little bit. It looks like lung markings, at least in the upper left field, all the way out to the periphery. So it's not like a giant pneuma that's jumping out at me. Um, looking at the right, it looks like there's some layering in the fissure in the right lung. It looks like uh, it's kind of opacified. So. Um, Looks like there's something going on that right lower lung as well. Right in here, huh? Yeah. Okay. And, and what? Okay. On that lateral film, it looked like there was more air than I'm used to seeing, kind of uh, retrosternal right in there. Uh, I don't know that I've seen that much typically on these lateral X-rays. And okay. there's a little bit of air behind the kind of the retrocardiac area. Okay. Um, so be concerned with something going on the right lung. Okay, something is going on in the right line. Okay, now what about the straight lines? Does nature like straight lines? It's a very stupid question, but no. it doesn't. So when you see a straight line, most of the time it's abnormal. Okay, so there are two straight lines in this picture, one right here, and one right here. So again, looking at the two lungs, they look different. It's possible there's a pneumo here, and this is the normal lung. Well, the other possibility is this is the normal lung and there's something funky going on here. How do you decide, where's the diaphragm? can't see it. Again, if this is, was normal lung and this was the abnormal lung, which it clearly isn't, but if it were, I want to see the diaphragm. I want to see this, and I don't. I see a straight line. So why do I see a straight line? Fluid, Fluid. exactly. So what does this person have, at least? Effusion. Right, they have a pleural effusion. So straight line, no diaphragm, pleural effusion. Second thing is straight line up here. Now, what, when, when do you see a straight line in an infiltrate? Uh, that, that, I mean, what, what else would be going on? What, what could that represent? I thought that was going to be fluid in the fissure. Um, that straight line there. Uh, that would be just a straight line. What you have here is density here and lightness up here with a straight line in the middle. Oh, so it's air fluid level. Ah, exactly. This is an air fluid level. Okay, so, and if you look back here, there's the straight line again. So, what do you think this person has? Okay, let me tell you, they're, they're an alcoholic with bad teeth, and they've been coughing for about six weeks, and they look amazingly well when you go and talk to them in the room. They look amazingly well. Right. You expect someone to be really sick, you know, gasping for breath. And you walk in there, and the guy's just kind of sitting on the bed. He's a little tachyptic, but doesn't look particularly like he's going to drop dead. And that's actually a classic picture for this, the etiology of this. Okay, so what do you think this might be due to? Aspiration. Could be aspiration, and that's, that's probably the most likely thing. Um, what are the, what's the differential for this? Uh, infectious. Right. We're just focusing on the infectious thing. The most, the, the most common bacterial infections would be staph. Why is this probably not staph? Because he looks okay. Because he looks okay. If you have a staph infection in your lung and you have abscess in your lung from staph, you are sick as a dog. You are on death's door. These people are incredible. They're all in the ICU. They all look like stool. They're really sick people, okay? <laughs> Staph, lung abscesses aren't walking around feeling good. Could this be TB? Um, 
TB typically would present in the upper lobe? Correct. TB typically presents up here, can present other places, especially in an HIV person. But what if you get a cavity from TB, TB, what is it typically? Is it wet or dry? Uh, dry. Typically, it's dry. So here you have a cavity, could be TB, wrong place, and it's wet, probably not TB. Now you throw in, the guy looks not great, but okay, bad teeth, alcoholic, been sick for a while, and the most likely etiology of this, without knowing anything more, is it's an anaerobic lung abscess. Anaerobic lung abscesses are actually tolerated pretty well. Uh, and it, they're usually in people with either, you know, uh, debilitated people, alcoholics, bad teeth, homeless, that kind of stuff. But when you look at this, you expect to see somebody like who really should be, like, toxic as hell. And they don't look well, but they don't look particularly ill either. And it's the, when I saw this and I went and saw the patient, I thought I had the wrong room. And so I went back to double check because I, I couldn't believe the guy looked as, as well as he did. Anyway, it took about three months to get rid of this. They put him on antibiotics. He was admitted. He was on antibiotics for a couple of weeks in the hospital. Then he went home. And you, and you treat this, it, it's protracted course of therapies, usually two to three months to get this to clear up. But it usually does with antibiotics. They usually don't need surgery. And um, this guy did not get surgery and actually did pretty well. Vertical line where? Uh, right here? No, no, no. Um, go back. It's like a vertical line. It's almost like a square. It's right like, here? Yeah. This is an artifact because you can see it actually goes right past the diaphragm. It goes oh, all the, yeah. So unfortunately, that's, that's actually an artifact. Okay. So this is a guy uh, comes in with a pacemaker who has a known massive aortic aneurysm. Okay. Known aneurysm. Unresectable, non-operable. Okay, knows that life is tough. This is what you get. So this was taken on a, a routine visit to his uh, PCP, who was especially doing this follow-up and you know saying, well, it's still there, and you know, so see you in a couple of months and good luck. So goes home. About a month later, uh, he's found severely hypotensive uh, at home, and he's brought in. Uh, this is another one. He goes to. We, in those days, we, all we had was trauma A, B, and C. So he goes in trauma A, and uh, he's supine. He's too sick to sit up. So we get a supine chest x-ray. And um, again, because it's film, we couldn't like bring it up immediately. We get a panic call from the radiologist saying he has ruptured his aortic aneurysm. And this is his chest x-ray. Now, is the radiologist correct? Or maybe not? What else might be going on? I'll give you a clue. He did not rupture his aortic aneurysm. Now this was a PA, this is an AP. Remember, one he was well, one he was dying. And he did die, by the way. So what happened here? He was actually hypothermic. Blood pressure 70, pulse of 120 to 130. 20% bands on the CBC. Actually lived long enough to get a CBC back. Okay. But the purpose of this is to il illustrate what is commonly known as the silhouette sign. The silhouette sign says that when you have, on, a, on an x-ray, two structures of like density, and you put them side by side, that they silhouette out the border between the two of them, and they look like one thing. 
And so this is typically what we see with infiltration. Why can't, when you have an, uh, an infusion on top of the diaphragm, why can't you see the diaphragm? Because the diaphragm and the liver essentially are fluid-filled structures. You pour fluid on top of them, and you silhouette out the difference between the two, and they all look like one. Um, why do you lose the heart border from pneumonia? Because the lung fills up with fluid. Now the heart and the lung are basically of like density instead of different density, and so the difference between the heart and the lung is silhouetted out. And so you just you lose the heart border. You can't see where one ends and the infiltrate begins. So what we have here is a guy. His aneurysm is still, if you look very closely, you can actually see the aneurysm is still here. But what's happened is he has a massive pneumonia, and the pneumonia has silhouetted out the aneurysm. So the lung and the aorta are now of like density. Ergo, the difference between the two disappears, and now all you see is one large fluid-filled structure. So in fact, this guy did not rupture his uh, aortic aneurysm, but had massive pneumonia, and his hypothermia was due to massive sepsis. When you're really sick and you're about to die from sepsis, you can sometimes get hypothermic, and that's what happened to this guy. And so he died about six hours later, uh, in spite of all of our interventions. But anyway, the point of this slide is the silhouette sign. Understand that when you have things of like density, things disappear. So those are oftentimes how we look at films to help us sort things out. Okay. This basically is a, I'll just go through this because this is a harder one to see. This is a um, <coughs> pneumothorax. And um, this is, you can see the lung right here. And then, um, let's see. <coughs> you can see, oh, wait a minute, let's see. No, I'm not sure this, which one, let me just sort through this. Yeah, this was, okay, right. All right, so this, this is not that good an image. Um, I was trying to point something out, but um, yeah, let's skip this one. Okay, this is another. All right, so what do we see here? This is a better, better film. Um, what do you think? Uh, the thing that immediately jumps out is like the left lung field. Okay. Um, okay, so you've lost your cross-refining angle over here. Okay. This is an upright film, so what do you think that means? There's probably some fluid in here. Right, okay. I'm not sure what it is yet, but that's, that's a good guess. Okay. What else do you see or not see? Well, the left lung looks very dark. Very dark, um, right. I don't see any lung markings out there. Hard to see lung markings. What's this thing right here? I think that's the lung. Uh, it's probably the lung. And, yeah. and what's, what's this thing... Here. That's the heart. All right, it's and, shifted over to the right. and it shifted over to the right. Right. So putting it all together, it's a pneumothorax, but it's ah, it's a tension pneumothorax. Yes, this is one of those films you're not supposed to see, but it, in fact, they they don't always read the book. This guy did not look that sick. We didn't think he had a tension pneumo. He didn't have any of the signs we commonly would expect. He was not hypotensive, slightly tachycardic, um, but we didn't really appreciate that he was that sick, so we went ahead and got the film and then realized we, he was sicker than we thought. So uh, as you can see, the, 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 the most important thing is you actually do start to shift the heart to the other side. And you can imagine as the, as the endothoracic pressure rises, filling pressure drops, and you can end up with uh, shock, and they're not going to be particularly responsive to fluids. He got a chest tube, which is here, and you can see now the heart has swung right back over to the other side, and you now see lung markings on this side. So you can see the big difference that, that happens, and it's pretty dramatic when you 
even before you put the chest tube in, when you open the cavity and release the pressure, their blood pressure comes up within about 15 to 20 seconds. It's pretty remarkable. Was the airway shifted in that first? I, it was hard for me to see it. Yes. Where is it? Is that? Oh. Okay. So look at where the left bronchus is taking off. Uh -huh. um, right there at the crine. And normally that should be right in the center, right? And it's all shifted towards the right. Oh, the entire thing is shifted over, right? That has the two chest tube in place. You'll see what it's. You will see the difference. It's tricky. It stays right down the midline of the spine shadow. In the previous film, it should. Yeah. All right. So that's typically what they look like, and you will probably, like most of us who've done this long enough, been fooled enough times that we'll actually end up getting an X-ray on one of these people. Anyway, that's what it looks like, and you want to respond to this immediately. They don't. I mean, get the chest tube set up. But in the meantime, somebody probably want to just put a 14-gauge or 16-gauge angiocath in and relieve the pressure before you end up with a, a situation that gets shocky. Okay. All right. Um, so this is a, a case of an individual um, and who came in who was sick. Um, she was over in bed 10. And um, th the reason that they got a C-spine film is not clear to me. Well, and it won't be clear to you either when you find out what's going on with this person. Uh, but it was a medical student. In those days, you know, we had an attending on from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And the senior residents sort of ran the show, and the attending was sort of, you know, hanging out to help them with real sick cases, but didn't really get presentations on anything the residents didn't want to present. So lots of things went on that we sort of found out after the fact were going on, uh, and so didn't have a chance to intervene up front. So this was a medical student case. So, and I couldn't ever find the medical student afterwards because they, they went off shift before we got to this point. But I don't know why this film was obtained, but it was. And so um, there is a pattern here, something you need to recognize, uh, that's very important on this film. So Juan, what do you, th you think is going on here? And I'll tell you, this is a not a traumatic case. Okay, so no this trauma. is not a trauma. Okay. And to give you one more clue, remember, we're in the chest category. So this is still part of the chest category. I don't know why there's this hyper, um, well, this really opaque area right underneath the, uh, right underneath the uh, spine. There. You want to point out to me what you're talking about here? <laughs> so yeah, the that's the top one's a pointer. Pretty subtle. No, no, that's that's just there. There, this was a chunky. Excuse me. This was a chunky person. I'll give you a clue. That's not the pathology. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know how thick this is. Um, it's a little weird. Yeah. I don't know exactly. You know. Okay. Why? Why do you see the soft tissue so well? You do. You really see the soft tissue well there. Uh, and the clue is you're not supposed to. So why do you see that soft tissue so well? You can see it all the way up. Yeah. What, what's going on there? Why do you see that? I'll give you another clue. It ain't in the bones. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with the bones. Yeah. All right. Well, the, the pattern you rec to, to recognize here is there is, should not be darkness in this area going all the way up. You should not be able to see this soft tissue that well. And the reason you see this soft tissue that well is because there's darkness on the other side of it, right up against the bone. And there's never darkness there in a normal person. And generally on an x-ray, darkness means air. 
So what we have here, and this is a pattern, learn to recognize it, air in the retropharyngeal um, space, um, air up against the um, uh, C-spine, and so this, this is clearly abnormal. So if you had an abscess in the retropharyngeal space uh, uh, with uh, gas-forming organisms, you might see air in this area. The other thing is, if that were the case, I don't see the abscess anywhere. There's no real swelling. It's just air. So um, that's interesting. So uh, I, I, as a good person, once this was presented to me, I said, gee, there's air in the retropharyngeal space. That doesn't make sense. Uh, they must have a pneumo. Let's go look at the chest x-ray. So they showed me the chest x-ray. This is the chest x-ray. And I'm looking, and I'm looking, and you know, diaphragms are okay. And I'm just really looking carefully. I cannot see a pneumo. Now, it's mediastinum, so I look for a pneumomediastinum. I cannot see a pneumomediastinum. It's like, what the heck? What's going on here? So we look, and we look. We probably spent about 10 minutes going over with the, with, with the, 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 the team taking care of it. We could not find the pneumothorax. And the problem with us was that we did not think big enough, and we didn't look closely enough at the rest of the tissue on the x-ray. Because when we went to examine the patient, her entire chest wall was red and crepitant, crepitant and she was in septic shock. And so we went back to the chest x-ray, and we looked over here. And if you look over here, what do you see? It's not real clear, but there's darkness over there where there should not be darkness. And that means air. And what she's got is neck fascia of the chest wall. And what this film demonstrates is how everything in the head and neck communicate with each other, even the skin. So air that began in the subcutaneous tissues with neck fascia ended up in the retropharyngeal space. Very bizarre, but making the point, there are two things. One, to learn <laughs> what air in the retropharyngeal space looks like, because most of the time you see that, it's because of a ruptured esophagus or a, a ruptured bronchus or a pneumothorax, something like that. So that's really why I brought this forward. So you need to recognize what air in the retrofinal space looks like. But it can also prove the point of how spaces communicate. So when you have infections in the head and neck, you have to worry about the mediastinum. Stuff going on in the chest can sometimes move up and involve the head and neck. All these tissue planes communicate with each other. And of course, this is the best example where you have air in a subcutaneous structure ending up deep inside the body. Very hard to understand how that happens, except that it does, and, and, and because all these spaces communicate. So this person also died. Okay, this is more just for uh, a little bit of anatomy. It's amusing. This was somebody that was brought to me in the middle of the night by the medicine team, because um, they didn't have attendings in those days. And they said, we put the central line in this gal, and we got this chest x-ray, and we thought, oh my god, you know, what did we do? And we aspirated back, we got blood. But we, we, we were really worried about this film. And here's the lateral. And we think it's in the lung, but we're not getting any air back. So what actually has happened here? I'm running out of time, so I'm going to start doing this myself. Um, so what, what happened? Here's the, the vein. What, what's going on here? Anybody? Okay, let me ask you a question. Where's the azagous vein? Right there. Right there. So what they've managed to do, hard as it seems to believe, they managed to cannulate the azagous vein. 
So this this is fine. There, it's not in the it, 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 it's not in this. That's the azgus vein. Actually, you can see where it's located. You know, it comes in sort of a little bit posterior there. That is where the azgus. So if you ever wanted to know where is the azgus vein on a chest X-ray, that's where it is. So that that's sort of just a, a, an amusing, but uh, nonetheless, very dramatic way of demonstrating that particular issue. Okay, all right. So this is an individual that comes in with uh, a blunt chest injury, high speed, looking very sick. This is the chest X-ray. Um, I don't know your name, so I'm going to have to ask you to just... Me? Yeah, go ahead. What do you think? Is um, okay, so the airway appears midline, no gross bony abnormalities. Um, the cardiac silhouette looks abnormal to me. There's definitely some widening of the mediastinum. Um, the heart, the cardiac silhouette appears to be somewhat abnormal. Uh, the diaphragms, there's no blunting of the of the angles. Um, I know it looks like there's good lung markings all the way out to the periphery, no stuff, few air. Um, so, so if I had a sink, what do you think? Give me a quick, this guy's uh, dying. What's going on? Like a okay, good. That's exactly what this is. This is a guy who, who died, who had a, a traumatic uh, transection of his aorta. And this is the first film, and as you can see, the mediastinum looks pretty wide. Now, classically, the numbers that you'll hear is on a, on a PHS x-ray, it's wider than six centimeters is wide. On an AP, it's eight centimeters. But when you look at most of the studies, when they try to come up with 25% of the mediastinum, all these, these guidelines to help you, they still fail a fair number of times. And the most sensitive finding, not the most specific, so you're going to miss some, and you're going you're gonna to overcall this somewhat, but the most sensitive is the opinion of an experienced emergency physician. That is the most sensitive finding for uh, a transected aorta. If an experienced emergency physician, defined by someone who's been in practice for more than five years, who looks at a chest x-ray and says, that mediastinum <coughs> looks wide, that is more sensitive than any other test that has been devised to date the, of clinical nature. Obviously, the, the CAT scan is the answer, but trying to make that initial decision, if this thing really looks wide to you, that's probably something that you need to act on. So this person actually went downhill, they got intubated, and you can see they're starting to now to demonstrate some of the other findings. They have the wide mediastinum, loss of the aortic knob, deviation of the trachea, uh, and here they actually had a pneumo, but that's not really, that was a secondary injury. That's not related to the transected aorta. That is as a consequence of the trauma. But this person's demonstrating essentially, and there's a little, even up here, a little apical capping, okay? So th there was no doubt what's happening to this person. They just couldn't get him to the uh, um, OR fast enough, and they died in the ER. Okay, here's another one. Again, read the textbook. Wide mediastinum, apical capping, shifting of the trachea. Shift if you had an NG tube down, you can see this right here. Shifting of the NG tube um, and a small uh, uh, hemothorax as well. Have you ever seen someone get to the No. Uh, I'm sure it happens. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, the ones that, that we sort of think about or that we, is obvious when they look like this, they usually don't make it. So it's the subtle ones where the CT is positive and they go to the OR. I know that there are cases like that and they do make it. But when we see these on the plane films early on and they're already you know, intubated, chest, they're already on septic shock, getting them to the OR usually, uh, you, you, they either die in the ER or they die in the OR. It's, it's a hard disease to treat when it's this bad. Okay. So, um, Next in line. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. There's definitely some uh, haziness in the legs. Pneumonia, just blunting. Okay. 
Okay, this is just to kind of, I'm going to move this along just because we're running out of time. So this is again, pattern recognition, big heart, fluffy on both sides, pulmonary edema, CHF. I mean, when you see this kind of thing, there, there could be, this could be somebody who has a cardiomyopathy and has ARDS. Yeah, 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 it could be. But the pattern, when you see this, oh my God, the first three things on your differential should be CHF, CHF, CHF. I'm going to move past this now to the extremities. Okay, so um, this is an individual that fell on an outstretched hand. Um, and Shahina, what do you see? His wrist hurts. There's, there's one finding here that you should pick up, and there's one finding here you might not, and that's okay. I'll give you a hand that the distal radius and the ulna are okay. Let's say, oh, don't press in my snuff box. Oh. Okay, well, acutely. This, is, this happened just like an hour ago. Okay, do you see a scaphoid fracture? No. Yes. <laughs> okay, it's right there. Okay. It's got a scaphoid fracture. <laughs> okay, but there's one, other, there's one other problem with this guy. So, yeah, he's got a scaphoid fracture, but uh, putting him in a thumb spike of splint is, is not necessarily um, the final jeopardy answer. Karen, do you see anything else? No, you can't look on your iPod. <laughs> oh. Because I have this exact image and the answer on here. <laughs> see, that's a, that's a problem. Yeah, everybody has their iPhones now. They can answer all these questions. All right. So I'll give you a lateral. Here's the lateral. Yeah. Okay. Description. Diagnosis, doctor. Is this a lunate or is this a perilunate? You have a 50-50 chance. What do you think? Ding, you're right. It's perilunate. But, but why? Why is it perilunate? Yeah. Because the capitate. Okay, right. So the point of this is, is that the lunate, the radius, and the capitate should all line up together. That's the normal anatomy. If the lunate does not line up either with the radius or the capitate, then there's a problem. And in this situation, the lunate does line up with the radius, but does not line up with the capitate. That is a perilunate dislocation. If the, radius, the lunate is out of the cup of the radius, then that's a lunate dislocation. Do you see that on the AP film? Um, you get a clue. What's clue? Right here. This, what is this normally? That's the lunate. What does it normally look like? It's not supposed to look like a lunate. That looks like, a, a lun that looks like the moon. It looks like a crescent moon. It ain't supposed to look like that. It's supposed to look sort of square. So right away you look at this, not only is there a fracture here, and you know that when you have a, a navicular fracture, lunate, perilunate dislocations are very common. So you look there, and that's not what it's supposed to look like. So something, you know, right from this view, you're suspicious that there's something funky with the lunate. And the lateral then makes the diagnosis. But you can suspect it just from this view. And here you have the lunate is in the cup of the radius, but it's dislocated. Everybody knows this. Okay, this is an R3 question now. Why do you care? So it's a perilunate, so it's a lunate. It's a dislocation. What's the difference? We treat it the same, right? No. Why not? What's the, why do you care the difference between a lunate and a perilunate? It matters. Exactly. Avascular necrosis. For which one? 
Yeah. Buzz. <laughs> oh, swing and a miss. It's the lunate. Okay. A perilunate dislocation, which is this, is not associated with vascular necrosis because the blood supply to the lunate is the ligament that holds it to the radius. So as long as the ligament that's holding it to the radius is intact, perilunate dislocation, the risk of avascular necrosis is low. If you have a lunate dislocation where you've disrupted that ligament which supplies blood flow to the lunate, you now have a lunate dislocation, higher risk of avascular necrosis. This is the one, probably you want to drag the radiologist, out, uh, the ortho guy out of bed, even if it's an unfunded patient. Because if this person gets avascular necrosis, it's a bad event. And it's predictable. Because you know he's got a lunate dislocation, high risk. Perilunate dislocation, I can't say that never happens, but low risk. Okay. Okay, we'll do one more and then I'm going to stop because I'm out of time. I've got, I got, I got to do the three questions at the end. Okay, so um, this is a guy that had axial loading on his thumb. He's complaining of uh, pain um, over the sort of the base of the thumb here, the uh, metacarpal carpal joint. I'll give you a sort of a more of a close-up of it there. And it's this little chip right off the proximal aspect of the metacarpal. Anybody know what that's called? It is a Bennett's fracture, correct. Now, why do we care about Bennett's fractures? Can you treat them like this? No, you cannot. If you look closely, you can see this is a closed reduction, and that fragment is still off. What happens if that fragment stays off? It does not heal, and you have a permanently unstable thumb. Not a good outcome. The treatment for that is this. It almost always requires pinning. The ligament that attaches to that bony spicule is very strong, and it is very difficult to get that thing close enough to the metatarsal to get it to heal. Most of the time, I won't say always, there are cases I know that the, radio, the ortho people have managed these closed and gotten away with it, but most of the time they have to be managed with pins. So if you see this, this is generally a, I wouldn't call it an operative repair, because sometimes they can do it under floor with the beds, I don't need to come to the OR, but Technically, for us, it's an operative repair. All right. So, at that point, we're out of time, and so I'm going. Is there any way to um, mouse this thing yeah. down to the end? So, I, well, the questions are at the very end. Hmm? Arrow keys. We can. It's just gonna. That's kind I was just hoping it can scan to the end. Yeah, you can. Oh. Just go. Okay. All right. So let's. Okay. All right, so here's the first question. Well, no, first oh. is this. Oh, first is this, right. Yes. This goes, that goes at the end of the, the talk. Yeah, <clears throat> my brother's a graphic artist, and so he drew that for me. This used to be part of a, of a board review course that I taught. And so you always have, when you do the board review course, people are all stressed out. And so I'd always try to come up with something cute at the end, like, you know, just to, like, okay, we're done, you pass. So that, he, he made that point. Anyway, so question number one, what is the most common finding in Borhoff's syndrome on a chest X-ray? Okay, next one. All the followings are signs of aortic transection except. Right, all right. Last one. What is